Hello and welcome to another edition of We Ain't Got No Podcast. Your host, Jay Wilmington here, and as I am almost all the time now, joined by Julian Bravo. And Julian, once again, we're here to talk about a little uh, Chelsea match action. And, and this time around, unlike unlike uh, last week, we have something exciting to talk about, but unfortunately not a lot of real positive things to say about it. So uh, before we really jump into this 3-0 defeat at Elling Roads at the hands of Leeds United, Julian... Anything really that you just want to throw out there and jump jump off, uh, you know, kind of going into the match and then just generally how we feel about, you know, of course, it's another derby with Leeds. Well, as always, thank you for having me. And, you know, I'm actually more content taking a back seat and kind of listening to what you have to say, listening to what a lot of others have to say, because one of the first things I did after the match was just walk up to people and ask them what they were thinking about the club, uh, the performance and what our issues were. And I'm taking a listening approach to this because as you know, I've offered a lot of opinions going into the season and in our last match. So I'm going to continue to listen and see what people are starting to pick up on because I feel like there's a lot that's been blatantly obvious with this club and it's been neglected. And I'm hoping that maybe people are starting to come around to it a little more. Well, and as a disclaimer to our listeners, I suppose a bit of a disclaimer anyway, I, I am the one here today that isn't as calm. I, you know, Julian and I had not seen a match together in person since we were at Stamford Bridge in March of 2020. It was Chelsea Everton, and it was the last match played before the pandemic. We were des- we were we were scheduled and had tickets to see uh, Aston Villa, uh, Chelsea Aston Villa in Birmingham the next week in 2020, and that's when, of course, the pandemic hit and and the league shut down. Mikel Arteta, if I remember right, tested positive, and suddenly the whole Premier League came crashing to a halt. So we were actually able to get back together, not at the stadium, but we were able to watch a match together in person for the first time in a long time. So one of the cool things for me was we were actually able to like talk throughout the match a little bit and watch watch the same thing and be back at our at our home ground, so to speak, where we've watched so many matches um, with a lot of other other Chelsea fans. And shout out to the British Bulldog in Denver because that's that's where we were at. Um, and and I you know. You could tell, like I, 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 a lot of emotions for me in this match, and and I think maybe a coming to head a bit of some things I'd I'd been feeling, but kind of been laying just below the surface or not really letting, you know, kind of hoping to not, um, maybe some of the concerns I had would come to come to fruition. But I think this match for me was a big part of that. So, just as we get into it, um, I think I think we talked first first and foremost about the starting lineup, and and for Chelsea, much like we saw against. Tottenham, we saw Mendy in goal, Reese James at that right center center back spot, along with Silva and Koulibaly at the center back positions, and then Loftus Cheek out at the right wing back position where he'd he'd somewhat excelled against Tottenham. Kukurea on the left side at left wing back, and then a two man midfield of Jorginho and Connor Gallagher. No big surprise there, I think. Um, again, it was very similar to the lineup, but with Conte injured. And some of the comments Tuchel had made pre-match, it seemed very clear to me that Gallagher was going to be uh, plugged into that spot. And then again, our front three of Raheem, Raheem Sterling, Kai Havertz, and Mason Mount. Um, for, you know, for Leeds, uh, Melier in goal, Rasmus Christensen, who who has been struggling on that right side, and you saw Chelsea have a lot of success down our attacking left early, along with uh, Koch, Lorente, Stroik, Mark Roca, Tyler Adams, Brendan Aronson, Rodrigo, Jack Harrison, and Daniel James. You know, interesting, certainly some talent there in the attacking lineup, but like Leeds, I often think lots of, maybe not a lot of direction um, to go along with that talent. Julian, 
what were your thoughts there looking at that starting 11? And maybe I might even point out specifically at Connor Gallagher coming in for Conte in the midfield. A lot of people ask the question, since Jorginho was sitting in that midfield, if we were actually going to play three midfielders, if Loftus-Cheek was going to move inside and we were going to play it four at the back. But I think some of Tuchel's comments after the match kind of indicated that as long as Thiago Silva is there, then we're probably not going to be playing four at the back. He kind of alluded to the fact that we need to play certain players to protect both him and Jorginho in this team. So... There was never a chance we were going to play three in the midfield, even though there was some question as to whether that might be the case. Said in the last match as well that Mount, Sterling, and Havertz is what he's going for. He's going to continue to persist with this attack until it works. And while some people haven't been happy with the way it's been up to this point, it definitely still seems like something he's going to persist with. And then, of course, Loftus-Cheek on the right wing. And I found that funny because... Sometimes you luck into something working that should have never worked from the start. And Loftus-Cheek had a pretty good game against Tottenham. But in theory, it made no sense for him to have ever been on that right wing. So we tried it again because it had success. But it's one of those things where it never should have worked in the first place. We were lucky it worked in the first place. We shouldn't have tried it again. And we tried it yet again. Yeah, maybe like victims of our own success in a bit that way. Because like you, I think it was surprising to see him in that position for Tottenham, particularly in a in a really big match with a rival and knowing that Tottenham, um, you know, was expected to be very, very um, up for that match and fighting for top four. Many people predicting them to finish ahead of ahead of us this season. And you're right, like it was it went better than I could have possibly expected. So maybe not a big surprise to see him in that same position for Leeds. But I think that'll be something that we talk about as the, as we as we move through the match because, you know, it's one piece that, while he looked good against Tottenham, certainly playing in a position that's outside of his normal, where, where he's played the majority of his career. Now, Loftus-Cheek's played a lot of places, but wing back, uh, you know, nobody would argue is, is that somewhere that he kind of is... Um, has, he has hardly played there at all, let alone um, somewhere that you'd feel confident that he could he could perform well in match match in to match out. But yeah, to me, that to looking at those starting lineups, the thing that stood out and and told me what I expected to see in the match was that two man midfield. Um, again, no big surprise. I think you're right. I think Tuchel's made it pretty clear this is the system that we're committed to. And some of my comments of frustration out of this match and going forward are related to that specifically, that our manager has made it very clear that this is the system we want to play. We have seen a we've seen different variations of it, so to speak, uh, and we've seen a different formation as recently as Arsenal preseason, which was a perhaps our worst performance in a long time. And a lot of that was due to the change in formation, Um, you know, whether or not that means that we should have scrapped it right away uh, that's probably a little bit different discussion but but just looking at this starting lineup thought man we are going to play a two-man central midfield of Connor Gallagher who is a in my estimation an attacking midfielder with excellent pressing abilities and Jorginho who is a we've we've talked to, about Jorginho ad nauseum but a guy who is not he's a, he's an excellent passer but not athletic enough to really maintain the defensive responsibilities of, of a midfield for me, particularly in a two-man midfield where that job is massive. Um, and and it, it just, that was something to me when I saw that pivot, I thought, okay, we are going to see a lot of transition from leads regardless of if we're effective in attack because we just don't have a midfield there to stop that transition. And I think that really 
that really came to fruition. So, you know, Julian, I thought we got off to a pretty good start in the match. I think in the first, you know, five, ten minutes, not only did we have a couple pretty good chances, um, you know, you saw you saw a little bit of countering from Leeds, good energy from both teams, and saw that they weren't going to just be penned back like we did to Everton. Um, but still, Chelsea pretty pretty strong. They came out and had, again, I brought up that left side um, where, where – uh, Kukurea and Sterling and Mount to some degree were were firing pretty well and and Julian to me it looked like we might be up a goal you know in the first 15 minutes yeah and there's going to be a lot of negativity directed towards uh, Connor Gallagher but one of the early chances that was created was from a wonderful pass through to Raheem Sterling so it wasn't all doom and gloom and from the early stages when the game was even it looked like his attacking prowess was not going to be lacking in this game even from a deeper role so at the very least he got us off to a good start I mean the game there was little structure to it it was very much a for lack of a better term a basketball game just up and down full pace the early stages of this match and you know Obviously, things might have been different had we taken one of our opportunities, but it honestly could have gone either way, even in those early stages. Yeah, and one of the one of the match moments that kind of stands out as a marker in the first ten minutes was a yellow card for Koulibaly, and a little bit unusual just because of how kind of ill positioned he was against Aronson, who um, he had to just you know it was a really blatant shirt pull. Uh, it was one of those that reminded me not not quite as blatant as Reese James' uh, shirt pull on Son in the match prior, but it it was it wasn't a position where you see a guy purposely give away a yellow because you're just you just stopping a break. It was almost just uh, Koulibaly couldn't keep up with the athleticism of Harrison and got so out of position that he he gave away a, a very blatantly obvious yellow card in an area that wasn't particularly like stopping a direct chance, and so. It was just a little odd because it was uh, it was uh, you know to give away to have one of your center backs give away a yellow card in the first ten minutes. Obviously, it creates a different kind of stress, particularly on Koulibaly, but your backline in general. Um, but that was kind of you know one of those moments where you just saw that Leeds and their athleticism and particularly their willingness to work. I get a little bit exhausted of the narrative, so to speak, in, in football of like, well, they just worked harder. and they, But there is a lot of data out there, and I think even Tuchel talked about that post-match, that you know, when you, when you kind of take a team uh, travel distance during the match and you find that Leeds traveled something like 11 kilometers more than Chelsea during the match, like, that's a lot. And it does tell you that that, you know, you, you probably did get pretty outworked there. And so I think the combination maybe of, of, of leads and always being leads and expecting that high energy leads, um, you know, we, we played into their hand a little bit with that yellow card from Kobali because we just put our back line under pressure um, even more so than we already do by having a two-man midfield that's not, by definition, is not going to shield that back line because they're a double pivot and neither of those guys, you know, none of their main qualities is in the defensive side of the ball. So, um, you know, that's not a huge surprise to me. But we almost got a goal. In fact, we got a goal, but it was ruled out in the 15 minutes when, when Sterling had a, had a, received the ball. And, and after missing a chance early, had a similar chance where he just was really nice. Looked like maybe he should have played Mount into the box, but he was just patient and ended up creating a little curler uh, just outside the, the six-yard box into the, into the corner. And it looked like Chelsea were up, but... You know, it's it's one of those things when things aren't going your way in the attacking end that you just almost, it, yeah, it felt like to me, I don't know about you, Julian, but it felt like to me not a big surprise when I saw the offside flag go up. 
Well, he has a little bit of a Timo Werner syndrome right here as he missed the opportunity that he had and created for himself, the great opportunity after some wonderful play. And then, of course, he scored maybe the chance we weren't expecting him to score and was ruled offsides. So that's been my biggest issue with the Raheem Sterling signing in the first place is he isn't always the most clinical finisher. He's already had a couple of opportunities this season that he has missed, and he does a great job of creating things. That was obvious when he did create that goal-scoring chance for himself. He found some great space, and he continues to do that throughout the game. But asking him and relying on him to be one of our most consistent scorers isn't the most ideal thing, especially when you really kind of consider that Kai Havertz has never been a consistent goal scorer with us. And Mason Mount, while he has been our leading goal scorer, that's not actually what you should be expecting from him. He's not quite Frank Lampard in terms of those goal scoring numbers, but basically you're kind of asking three players that aren't maybe equipped to carry the goal scoring load to maybe share it. And so far we haven't really seen the result from that. Yeah, that's interesting. And I'm going to get into to the Mason Mount part of things a little bit here as well, because I think he, you know, I, I'm very interested to get your take on him and whether he's sort of, you know, not in his finest form or whether he's another victim of sort of this style of play and formation that we're playing and not really allowing him to do some of the things he does. He does the best. But, um, you know, you you mentioned Havertz and and. Uh, Again, somebody else. I think I think I've, I I will talk about when we get to the end of this because there's a whole there's a handful of players that I think are being disadvantaged by being played out of position. I think he's one of them. I don't necessarily think we have a great solution to fix that, but I but I when I watch Kai Harvard, it's so hard for me to consistently evaluate his play because in a nine, number true number nine position. And in a number nine position that is not getting fed the ball, it's a really difficult spot for me to evaluate him because that's not the player that we bought anyway. He has certainly some of the characteristics to be that guy, but I will we'll, we'll get into that and some of some of the you know extent at which some of the personnel that we have are being sort of misused or used outside of where they've traditionally been used in their careers. Um, but really, Chelsea, I, I thought this was kind of the stretch of the match after that, um, you know, 15 minutes in, 20 minutes in, 25, where, you know, we still look to be the dominant team, but you started to see Leeds do a few things that made me nervous. And one of those was the movement of particularly Aronson in the midfield. I, I, I thought it was pretty designed to move Jorginho out of the midfield and just continue to create more and more openness in that midfield and leave Connor Gallagher in in loads of space with a lot of defensive responsibility and to me that's that again that's not his strength so um, Chelsea didn't really come under any major pressure until the 20th minute when Rodrigo got in behind the defense and fired wide of the post um, and, and that was kind of the first real cider for for Leeds that was a little bit of concern to Chelsea and then shortly after that Mount almost opened the scoring. He gets away on kind of a little bit of an awkward break, but as he as he goes to look far corner, he strikes quickly back to the near post, and Melier, almost wrong-footed, has to dive quickly back to his left to just palm the whip ball around the post. And, you know, it was one of those chances that wasn't like uh, a miraculous save or anything, but, you know, you thought, oh, man, just, just one little extra... Um, degree of leaning from Melier on the wrong foot, and he probably doesn't get back to save that. And I think that for Chelsea would have been a would have been a big one because 
that after that moment, lead starts to take starts to take control, and and it's the thirty third minute in which Brendan Aronson gets the goal, and of course not based on dominance of play, a massive individual mistake. And Julian, I'm going to let you talk about it first. You know, uh, to, you know, walk me through that with Mendy. Is this is this is this mistake just one you live with every once in a while with the team trying to play out of the back, or I mean, is this as it seemed to me something that's sort of like a continuation of Edward Mendy? struggling in these positions. And before I jump into that, I'm going to go back to that Mason Mount opportunity real quick, because I do want to highlight the best thing Kai Havertz did all match, and it's often underappreciated from a lot of people. But he did go up, win a header that played the ball into the path of our attackers. So that oftentimes isn't appreciated. Giroud was great at doing that. Tammy Abraham was great at doing that. And it did create one of our best opportunities. That was the best thing Havertz did all game. So I want to give him credit for that at the very least. Now, there has been a lot of issues leading up to what happened with Thiago Silva. He was having issues transitioning the ball through the midfield. And this isn't going to be just a hate on Jorginho parades today, but Jorginho does lack certain things. And he is not an athletic person, and he really lacks the ability to, well, dribble past players. So if he is pressured and there isn't an outlet for him, then you can't give the ball to Jorginho. And that was kind of the case early on. He was saying that Jorginho didn't have the time that he had in the Tottenham match to play some passes. And as a result, the ball kept going back, and Mendy has struggled. He has never been great with his feet. So a combination of not having an outlet for Thiago Silva and a combination of not necessarily a world-class goalkeeper in terms of his footwork and his passing ability, it was, if it wasn't going to happen now, it was going to happen at some point throughout this season. And it's something that needs to be fixed because we need to find a way of getting the ball out and through the midfield because that continuously seems to be an issue and it's going to cause more issues in the back if we continue to allow this to happen. Yeah, like you said, it is an individual error and it's one that, you know, I don't think you draw a lot of lot off of in the sense of, oh man, you know, he did that today and that's going to happen multiple times a season. But but it's also not a total surprise because yeah, I mean Mendy is a shot stopper first and one even at that I think is a little bit shaky at times, but but He's not an Ederson. He's not a guy that's back there specifically to play the ball out and spray the ball out of his feet. And that begs a little bit of questioning then, is that somebody that you want to ask that of? Because it's clearly something that that Chelsea wants him to be doing um, on a semi-regular basis. Maybe not under that kind of pressure, but but that's, you know, that's splitting hairs a little bit. Um, Shortly after the Aronson goal, uh, Sterling is caught, is Caught a little bit off balance, trips Roca, picks up another yellow card, and then almost immediately the hammer blow comes because it goes from sort of an individual mistake that leaves you in a tough position to come back to a second goal and now the match being pretty much gone. And it comes out of, you know, uh, Rodrigo's the one that scores it. Harrison whips in a free kick delivery uh, in from the left side, and Rodrigo gets up above James and and heads it into the right corner of the net. I mean, it's a good finish uh, by Rodrigo, but another set piece where, you know, uh, you know, one of the things that frustrates me a lot about Chelsea is that if you look at the number of set pieces that they have, particularly corner kicks, but also free kicks to some degree, our conversion rate is pretty pretty abysmal, um, and yet our you know, converted against rate is a little bit alarming. And it's just one of those things when you watch match to match to match, and we just 
we just throw away so many set pieces with really poor balls in when we have guys that are certainly capable of of very quality delivery. And then you watch teams against us, and they may not have very many set pieces, but it's like they just really seem to make them count. And here, here one comes again. And now with Chelsea down down two nil, I mean, I don't know about you, Julian. Certainly, you've seen Chelsea come back from some deficits, but to me, the writing was on the wall at that point, and in particular because as Leeds scored their second goal, it was kind of culminating with us not really being able to create clear cut chances either. So it does come down to coaching and some people don't like to hear this, but if you're struggling with set pieces, then it's because your coaching isn't up to standard. And we have conceded some really bad goals, uh, set pieces already this season. And obviously the Tottenham one comes to mind. And Jose Mourinho had a great way of dealing with this. For those that don't remember, Drogba was kind of a free roamer. Like he would roam around and he would head things out of the box. And it was a great solution. And the team was, well, bigger i don't want to get into this the fact that we actually have one of the smaller teams in the entire league at this point so we are perhaps more prone to these sort of things like from set pieces aerial attacks and as a result it it didn't look good just like the one against tottenham didn't and the fact that we're so early into the season we've seen a couple of these already it doesn't bode well especially when you have somebody like Thiago Silva back there that knows what he's doing and he can kind of set everyone in the right place. And if they're not doing their job, then it's something's obviously missing. The back line doesn't seem to have the cohesion that we really need from it. As far as coming back from this, I mean, I, with, with the exception of maybe Real Madrid, I don't think I've seen a significant amount of fight in this team for quite a while. They are not the type of team that's built to play from behind. We are definitely the ones that need a lead and we need a kind of big lead and hold on to it. And that's the only way you can ever really feel secure. But as far as the comeback goes, yeah, I didn't, I never saw any opportunity in that. Well, and here's where I'm going to throw in a little evidence that is completely anecdotal. So I recognize this could just be thrown right back in my face, but my evidence there is let's take this same day. Um, you know, Manchester City falls behind Newcastle by multiple goals. And I am not under the assumption that we're the only top team that can come up, you know, start a match flat and really kind of get our butts kicked from kickoff. Um, the difference being is, is to me, the ability that fight back. And maybe it's just our ability to create clear-cut scoring chances or our finishing ability. But I don't think there's a lot of people that saw City down 3-1 to one against Newcastle in the second half and thought, oh, this thing's over. I I I felt like the match was pretty decided at halftime with Leeds and Chelsea. Not that we were incapable of coming back, but that there really wasn't a lot of precedent for something like that. Whereas I think with City, there's tons of precedent for them scoring goals in, in bagfuls. And for us, that's just not the case. And so at this point in the season, really, with just scoring one goal now through three matches from open play... Um, you know, uh, we've had a corner, a goal off a corner kick and a goal off a penalty and one from open play, that Reese James goal. Uh, you know, I don't think you'd look at the matches we played this year as a bunch of evidence that we're going to create goals out of out of open play. So maybe that's part of it. But I, I, along with that was some very interesting choices. I thought we, we started the second half, you know, with a little bit of energy. Connor Gallagher had a couple of... Uh, I would call a chance and a half chance um, we didn't make the most of. 
And then something very interesting to me, uh, a double substitution. Actually, Leeds made the first substitution in the 61st minute where Forshaw came on for Roca. But a double substitution for Chelsea in the 64th minute saw us take off both of our midfielders from that double pivot and put Ziyech on for Jorginho and Pulisic on for Gallagher. Julian, tell me maybe how you felt at the moment of that change and then now kind of looking at it like, what do you think the thought process there was for that double change? Well, this gives me an opportunity, a perfect opportunity, actually, to give you some pushback. You said that you didn't think we were capable of coming back and at least leveling this match. I feel like this was evidence and proof that we weren't, because I kind of looked around and said, what could we possibly do? What kind of subs could we make that would make us a better team? And the answer is, regardless of who is on our bench right now, there wasn't anything. As long as Conte was out and Kovacic was out, we didn't have the solidity in the midfield that we really needed. and. People think that maybe you can haul off some midfielders for some attackers and your attack will succeed as a result. No, you kind of still need to put some players back there because there still needs to be some transition through the midfield. And maybe that was Tuchel's thinking. I don't know what his thinking on this was. Kind of looked like Loftus-Cheek may have made his way into the midfield and there were some adjustments, but this was a Hail Mary. This was a kind of let's throw something out there and see what happens sort of substitution because taking off all of your midfields, there was absolutely no fluidity in our team from that point going forward. Not that there was much before that, actually. Yeah, and your your Hail Mary comment is is well taken. And, and Chelsea almost completed it, so to speak, early because James does get a pretty good chance and drives a strike at goal. Melier makes a pretty good save. But then it's just minutes later that the match is truly uh, taken away from Chelsea as Jack Harrison adds a third uh, for Leeds, uh, picks out a cross from, from Rodrigo on the left, doesn't really control it super well, but then Harrison's there uh, to poke the ball in the back of the net from close range. And, you know, at three, now the writing's truly on the wall. Leeds makes another change, uh, takes Daniel James off to kind of lock down the match. And, and you know, at that point, you know, for me, it, it's just kind of letting this play out. I mean, Chelsea have a couple of other chances and and... But at 3-0 down and on the road, um, there just wasn't a lot left to talk about other than a few Chelsea chances. And then finally, the one other thing that I did want to mention specifically was the second yellow card for Koulibaly and obviously the red to follow. Again, just kind of poor positioning, not not really being where he needs to be and giving away a pretty obvious yellow card. You know, particularly for a guy that's on a yellow and being down three goals, I guess at that point it was it was inevitable. But certainly not something that you want to see from your kind of new uh, premier center back signing. Uh, you know, the guy that's replacing Rudiger, who is the heart and soul of your defense, kind of just being really out of position and having to give away two bad fouls, Julian. I. I, I am obviously like a lot of like the rest of Chelsea fans really hopeful this isn't something we see much more of from him. Well, it is really concerning and just an anecdote after the last podcast, I had a brief discussion with you afterwards. I said I had some concerns about Koulibaly and a lot of people found that notion to be kind of crazy. But there are sometimes you can watch a player and say, I think that there's some things that people are missing. And that was kind of the case with Koulibaly. Now, it didn't necessarily pertain to his lack of athleticism in some of those cases. 
But it didn't seem like he was maybe as assured and confident. And maybe it will take some time. Maybe he just needs some familiarity with the rest of the team. But he has looked a little uncomfortable at times. And that's been a little bit of a warning sign because Rudiger had all the confidence in the world. Rudiger was the type of player that was going to take a shot from 50 yards out. He was going to play a ball, a long ball, 20 times a match, even if he only makes one of them. Koulibaly doesn't have that quite yet, and it could be a product of maybe the lack of defense in front of him. He doesn't have the support he needs, and it's, it is it is a little concerning. I'm still keeping an open mind about this, but I, I do have a little bit of concern about Koulibaly at this point. And I think it's a little bit hard to argue uh, so, argue against you, particularly after that after that match. I mean, you saw it really on display. But maybe I'm in a little bit too too much of a rush to get through talking points of the actual football because I I have other things I want to talk about here related to some of the post game comments from the manager and then just some of the response that it appears the club has to the match. Here's here's where I want to start with the post with the post game stuff. I'll get I'm going to start this with a couple of comments in quotes from from Tuchel. Um, again, take take this with somewhat of a grain of salt because I understand that a manager's comments after the match are there to serve multiple purposes. They're there to serve, um, you know, to be the PR representative for the club, so to speak. I, you know, Tuchel, I think, has done a pretty good job in his time with the press in being candid or at least presenting an image that he's pretty straightforward. He pretty much tells it like he sees it. He has a decent... Uh, sense of humor about it, but that he generally isn't real cagey. He mostly tells you what you're looking for, except for you know specific comments about a transfer target or something. But here's Thomas Tuchel, Tuchel post-match with a couple of things that I want to expound on after. He says, I think all of you, all of you in the media, make the mistake, and I feel it, that they run 11 kilometers more and we lose 3-0. It is a set piece and a huge mistake. And the only one team should have led 1-0, and that was us. So everybody knows that they run more. It's nothing to do with mentality. I don't think it's mentality that Edwa doesn't make the right decision. I think the mentality in set pieces at the moment, but not the big mentality as a headline, please. The mentality in set pieces is not good enough. Mentality comes down to discipline and doing what we should do and what makes us strong in the first 15-20 minutes. It was enough to kill the game and bring it into the direction where it was last season. If they scored the opening chance, did what they did, then the win was possible. Maybe you don't believe me and that I don't see a connection that we have a huge mentality problem and that we're not ready for what's coming. So uh, let me just start here. I think I think that, you know, it's clearly a manager who's trying to deflect from some of the major uh, reactions to a 3-0 defeat on the road to a team that you handily dealt with just a few months back at the end of last season in May in the same ground. That kind of makes sense to me. I don't expect him to come out and and build, add to the fire um, that is around, you know, the narrative post-match. However, there are some specific comments here that do worry me. His comments mentioning that these are down to a couple of individual mistakes and that had that Sterling goal say he's not offsides early, and the and the and the Mendy obviously clear mistake for Aronson's first goal don't sort of set the table for this. That Chelsea's just fine. That the match is in control and Chelsea's in good shape. Um, I'll get to some more of my thoughts on that. But Julian, uh, you know, wh- what are your thoughts there? Because to me, that's really just not accurate. I don't think it's accurate either. And I think he is trying to deflect 
there were times in Mourinho's second spell, especially during the season in which we were struggling, where we were genuinely unlucky. There were a couple of things here or there that just happened to go against us. And as a result, we struggled and we were probably doing worse than we deserved to. That's not the case here. We definitely did not deserve to win this match. Even if Sterling scores those goals, I don't think that's going to change anything. I still think we were overrun in the midfield. I think the tactics that we put out there for this match were clearly wrong for the type of match it was. And these comments that he's making, it just kind of goes to show that maybe he's he's doing one of two things. He's either ignoring the realities of what's going on, or he genuinely believes these things, which is much more frightening. Because if he actually believes that this is the case, then it continues to show that he is oblivious to all of the issues within this club right now. Yeah, and I think you've set me up there for the main thing that's been just sitting in my in my in the back of my head, sitting in, in a knot in my stomach since this match was played yesterday, and that I can't, no matter how much time I take to sort of try to think of other context or, or you know, take a deep breath, I, I can't really get around this big frustration of mine, and it is this. I have been frustrated with, the midfield personnel that we have to specifically play this double pivot system. I think that if you're going to play a two-man midfield, okay, you need two particular types of midfielders. I think that N'Golo Kante is the closest one to fitting a two-man midfield that we have on our roster, and that's basically because the guy can pretty much do everything. I don't think that a two-man pivot is his best way to be, but because he can cover so much ground he literally acts as almost multiple players in a two-man midfield. He he is a he he works hard. He's a good passer. He creates transition through turnovers and and he is constantly breaking up transition. So, I think asking anyone else to be to do any form of what N'Golo Kanté does in that two-man midfield is naive just by looking at the player profiles. But okay, let's say we've got one that's a pretty good one and fits this system well. Even he is not reliable, and it has nothing to do with the player's skills or abilities. It's all about his um, history with injuries. And we, I just, there's just no Chelsea fans that you'd go out there and they'd tell you, and Golo Conte should be expected to play 40 matches this season. It, there's just no evidence in the last several years that he's capable of doing that because of just his frailty or, or his muscle mates, muscle injuries in particular. Um, and so now, now I want to get into the other players because this goes along with a quote that he says when asked specifically about adding a midfielder to this squad, Tuchel says, quote, another midfielder. We have Jorginho and Golo Kante. We have Ruben Loftus-Cheek, Connor Gallagher, Mateo Kovacic. Adding about Kante and Kovacic, they're injured. Yes, it's a problem, but they'll come back. They've not disappeared. This is about the extent of anything I've ever heard Thomas Tuchel talk about the midfield personnel and the depth of our squad there. And th- and it's always this message. It's why, we, are you crazy? We need defenders, we need attackers. Why would we look at midfield? We've got like two spots and we've got eight guys. Oh man, do I think that is misguided to say it nicely. We just talked about N'Golo Conte's injuries. We mentioned earlier Jorginho, who is a very specialized midfielder. That guy is going to have books written about him by just Chelsea fans alone, but really he has not played in his position since Mauricio Sarri was here because Sarri brought him in to play a very specific midfield position for him. 
Jorginho is an excellent passer and at times a very effective player when we're trying to break down a high press. But he is so lacking in athletic ability that anything he has to do to track, mark, or chase down or stop moments of transition, he is very overmatched and he adds to the problem. So I'll say that. There's those two. The next guy he mentions is Loftus-Cheek, who last time I checked has played right wing back the last two matches and has been played anywhere from striker to wing back to midfielder to defensive midfielder. I, I Does Ruben Loftus-Cheek know what his position is at this point? Connor Gallagher is getting a lot of grief after that match, and I feel like it's unfair to Connor because he was played in a position where when I looked at that starting lineup, said, well, well, that's not going to work because now you have Jorginho and you think Gallagher's, excuse me, <coughs> Gallagher's going to do the Conte job. He's going to be the one to make up for the athletic um, frailties of Jorginho. I, there's no way. That's not what he did. It's not what he did at Palace. I think people make the mistake of watching Conor Gallagher have high energy and work hard and be an affecting pressing midfielder and make the mistake of saying, oh, he's got defensive qualities. Only in an attacking part of the pitch where the guy has his back to him and he's pressing. He's not a sit and drop deep and shield the center back kind of midfielder. And finally, Mateo Kovacic, who, I, again, I think is, along with N'Golo Kante, probably our best, our second best midfielder there. But... Again, I think he has average defensive and transitional defensive qualities, but the main thing we always talk about Kovacic and his big value to Chelsea in the midfield is his ability on the ball, dribbling specifically, to break down concentrated back, you know, teams with two banks of four where he can sort of break past an individual in that front bank of four and then create a mismatch or or an odd man opportunity against the back line. Like, those are all very valuable qualities from that position, but they are not going to solve any of the things we saw at Leeds today. So, Julian, I know I've gone for a long time here, um, but that's just the personnel side. So I've gone through all these players that Tuchel mentioned in his post-match interview, player by player, and none of those guys, when he says we have too many options, I almost see like we have zero options. So tell me where I'm off base there and where you think maybe I have some of that right. Well, one thing I found really funny was there were times you would see Conor Gallagher as our most forward player. So I think a lot of people don't seem to understand that even when he was asked to do this role, he was still roaming forward because that's his natural instinct. It's very almost Lampard-esque in that sense. I, I obviously don't think you're wrong in the sense that I've said the exact same thing for a very long time for quite a few years, and I've gotten a lot of pushback on it. Even when I am giving credits to all three of them, Jorginho, Conte, and Kovacic, I've still alluded to the fact that they don't really play that well together. With the exception of Jorginho and Kovacic that, in the right match, plays well in a two-man midfield, none of them really seems to fit right. Like, Jorginho and, Kov- uh, Jorginho and Conte are two wildly different players, and Conte can shield Jorginho as much as possible, but Jorginho never finds Conte in the right spot. He's never where he wants him to be. And uh, when you have Kovacic and uh, Conte, they, again, you're kind of now lacking the passing that you need from Jorginho. So none of this combination works. And what's also kind of frightening about that is after the match, I went around, asked a bunch of people, and the same thing came back from everybody I asked. Our midfield was the problem. And the solution they came up with was if Kovacic was playing. 
if Conte was playing. It's like they're not playing. We don't have a fourth option. And they often are injured. And I don't think it would have made a difference. If Conte was playing today, okay, maybe we are a lot more solid in defense. But even then, it's just a matter of time before a team breaks us down because Conte is inevitable, unfortunately, at this point in his career. He is going to get injured. Same thing with Kovacic. He seems to always be in and out of the lineup through injury. And the only one that's been consistent has been Jorginho, and he's the one that needs the most support. So sacrificing so much for one player at this point, when it's really obvious and clear that we need more defense in that midfield, and it's not even a little bit, it's in desperation. It's negligence at this point. So I'm going to make an analogy that is just really out there, but hang with me here, folks. I, I grew up on a horse ranch, grew up breaking horses. We had about 60 to 80 animals between horses and mules at any point. And one of the things that we always had to kind of keep track of was like, what are the numbers of this herd? How many of the animals are actually able to be used for clientele to be able to ride this animal versus how many just have, you know, some medical issue or some injury or some other reason with uh, personality that they can't be used. And, and it reminds me of some of the squad bloating here at Chelsea where it's like, like if you just step back and look at the whole horse corral, you just step back and look at the squad depth, and it's like, yeah, we got a lot of dudes at every position. But if you actually start going, okay, how many of these guys are able to be playing most matches and available for selection, and how many of them actually sort of fit together? In other words, we're taking a horseback ride that is, uh, you know, going to such and such destination far away, and it's above tree line, and they need to have a certain of. Uh, it's like suddenly this uh, this horse corral of eighty animals. There's like twelve that are kind of reliable and that we can take. And 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 I feel that way a little bit about our squad, particularly the midfield. Like if you just step back and want to look at the numbers and then sort of say like well today the numbers weren't there so let's just look at the group that can't be there today and say well we have them so we're okay where is the second part of that to say yeah but are they is that actually are those people available and part of this makeup and that's where I see the frailty because you know the numbers alone maybe yeah there's eight guys for two spots but when we start saying like how many of these guys really fit that? And how many of them are available every day? And how many can we count on to saddle up and go to go ride with? It's like not, not, not actually very many. And that's what scares me is I don't know if Thomas Tuchel knows that. And he is saying these things because he knows the challenge and just presenting that um, lack of, of confidence in his options won't benefit anyone. Maybe. I, I think that's an argument you could make. But again, for me, going back to that's not really who Thomas Tuchel's been at Chelsea. The comments he makes in his pre- and post-match conferences are generally very much how he feels, very much how he thinks. Maybe he'll couch it uh, carefully um, for the press, but he, he's pretty candid. And so I just, when I go back and try to find him talking about we need more midfielders, I don't, I can't find it anywhere. And that's where... Added to that, I think that it, it's very likely that Chelsea, between now and the end of the transfer deadline, goes out and spends a world record fee on a center back, Wesley Fafana, and spends way more money than they should on an attacking option like an Yang, who's way past their prime as some sort of stopgap, all because there's this belief that we're just lacking the right individuals. And, and I just don't think that's accurate. I think... 
Wesley Fafana is still going to have issues playing right center back for Chelsea because he doesn't have a defensive midfielder ever in front of him, ever. So whether it's Rodrigo or James Harrison or any team in the Premier League, it doesn't need to be Leeds. All these teams have world-class athletes. And when they are able to, maybe not often, but when they can transition against you and your midfield is effectively gone because they're not players there that are going to slow you down and break up that transition... Having guys like Thiago Silva and Koulibaly, who are in their 30s, having to backtrack against world-class wingers particularly and play one-on-one defense and stop those, it's a bad setup. It's a bad way to try to defend that style of play. And to me, the answer is to have some help shielding that back line in one way or another, whether it's a single defensive midfielder or it's a midfield structure that plays personnel who have more qualities that are along those lines and not just, as we talked about, a Gallagher who it's like, yeah, he can make some good tackles, but in very particular circumstances, and then expecting that, like, eh, if I close my eyes, I can imagine them doing that back in Chelsea's end of the pitch in the box. It's just naive. And I, with all of Tuchel's um, belief around the world that he's one of the top tactical managers, there's this disconnect there for me that goes, surely this guy, as tactically... um, excellent as he is, isn't really as naive as sitting here thinking, yes, our midfield is exactly where we need it to be. So I'm still holding out hope that this is part of a PR message that we're getting. And behind the scenes, he's telling Todd Bowley, like, you know, okay, we're not getting Declan Rice this summer, but but I've got to have Kone. I've got to have, there, there's other options out there. But I don't know. When you look at center back and, and striker, the options are being talked about by these exact individuals. So so I don't know, Julian, I, I know that's a lot, but do you think there's something here where the club is actually looking harder at this and maybe giving the message that things are rosier than, than you know they actually feel like that? Or do you think this is as simple as that, that Tuchel believes that this is a two-man midfield, the options are there, and this is as simple as correcting some individual mistakes? I keep saying this, and I'll say this to everybody. It looks like the new ownership completely backs Tuchel, and they completely believe in him. And so many people have been saying for so many years that all they want is the club to back the manager. And my biggest concern is, what if you're backing the wrong guy? You're going to set yourself back a lot further than if you continuously change things, which I don't like that model either. I've always believed we need to back our manager when they've shown signs of progress. But this is, I don't think that he's, behind the scenes saying, uh, get me a midfielder, or that the ownership group is saying, oh, we need a midfielder. I think that everybody involved right now is going, you know, if Conte and Kovacic were fits, then this wouldn't happen. And we have three world-class midfielders that can all play those two positions. So it's just a matter of keeping them fit and rotating them, and we will be more than fine. And it is naive and uh, negligent, and I, I don't think we're going to see a midfielder. And I don't I think we're going to continue to see stuff like this happen. And the manager is going to go, I I can't explain this. Maybe we don't have the right players right now, but we will have them. Or the ownership group will say, well, why aren't we getting the results we expected when we're spending 250 million if we do get those players you mentioned? And it'll be glaringly obvious to all of us watching it, but somehow not obvious to them, because I genuinely think he believes what he's saying. And I genuinely believe the ownership still continues to believe in him despite the fact that this is pretty obvious to everybody else. One of my favorite voices in football punditry is Kristen, Kristen Hennig, who used to be part of a podcast called The Front Three that was one of my favorites. It's been 
disbanded now for several years. Um, but I heard him on a soccer talk show uh, today, specifically talking about the Premier League and how the Premier League's mentality to use the transfer market to solve every issue in your squad rather than trying to say, like, we're going to use our manager to kind of coach us out of this issue. I agree with him. I mean, it is it is a little fascinating that there's never... Yeah, it's just so so heavily focused on the transfer market to solve your solve your issues. Um, you know, I, I I think I think the positive here is that if we're if we're willing to identify this issue and make a commitment to change it, I I don't think we I think we have personnel that we can play a variety of systems. I don't think we are so locked into what we are currently doing because that's all we possibly could do. I just I just find it very interesting that Tuchel seems to feel like this is far and away the best system for us. Um, let me add one more thing. I think that this system is neutralizes the impact of the midfielders. I've talked about that. But I but I think on the off the other side of that, it does so in an effort to really accentuate the impact of the wingbacks and and that is where this makes sense where you're playing this back five in this two-man midfield pretty much so you can have wingbacks and what makes less sense to me is okay and we have potentially the best right wing back in the league and he's started the last two matches at right center back of course that's Reese James uh, you know, again, we talked about Loftus Cheek playing a pretty, having a pretty good performance at Tottenham. But, but what makes less sense to me is that we are playing a formation specifically to highlight wingbacks in our squad, and then we're playing guys that aren't wingbacks in those positions, or at least we did with 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 uh, Loftus Cheek. Uh, you know, I don't think the Kukurea Chilwell. Uh, conversation as easy as some folks because I do think Chilwell still has a ways to go for recovery. I also think Kukurea has been very strong, so while the fee is high, I'm I'm I I like that player. But again, it just makes no sense to me that if your argument is we have to play this two man midfield system because we need the effect of these wing backs, but we have a guy who's going to be the most effective wing back out there, but we're not going to play him there. It just, I I just feel like I'm on this merry go round of of discussion trying to go like. Man, we are working so hard to not do the easy, straightforward thing that kind of seems um, like that's that's one of my big questions, I guess, here is it's like it's just one thing if this is very clearly so Reese James can just be set free at right wing back and we've now brought Kukurea in at left wing back. And that's where um, even at Tottenham, I thought our, our midfield issues were... Um, not so important because I thought we effectively had a four-man midfield. Reese James came from that right wing, right center back spot with Tottenham, um, but he was all over the pitch. He was in midfield constantly, coming up from the back line into midfield, and then Mount from the front three was dropping back into midfield. And so you had this two-man midfield, but it was being sort of uh, propped up by by James coming out of the back, and then also Mount coming out of the front, and that was creating issues for Tottenham because they didn't know where this midfield creation was going to come from all the time. And then I I looked at Leeds, and it was like there are two guys in the middle of the pitch and three guys up front trying to basically be on the front shoulder of Leeds guys so they can make a break on a run none of those three are sort of this link-up player coming into the midfield um and and I wonder um this is where I'm going to ask you a specific specific question for me this is where I'm a little concerned about Mason Mount because he was pretty good in that Tottenham match where again I could define what he was doing he was clearly the guy dropping in a midfield to bring it into connection to the front three and finding space all over the pitch 
against Leeds, I, I didn't see that. I didn't see he was that person. He just seemed to be part of a front three that was occasionally trying to be part of a transitional goal creation, which wasn't effective. So, you know, Julian, do you think specifically to Mason Mount, is he sort of also becoming a victim of this, um, you know, style of play that we have? Or do you think that he's just happened to have a couple of, you know, his more average or poor performances in a Chelsea shirt here lately? I I will never criticize um, Mason Mount for a lack of effort, but he doesn't seem to have the same sort of like enthusiasm in him right now. And I can't explain why that is. And it could just be because he's gone anonymous in these matches, but he's right now not the same player that we know. And he is being played in a more unique system. I, I've never understood this concept of interchangeability in the front three because it doesn't really seem to help anybody. Like, nobody looks good in this. Havertz doesn't look good. Sterling looks okay sometimes, but from the first match we saw him where he looked better than he has in the last two, you're already seeing the decline. And even after that Everton match, I said, I really hope he doesn't get discouraged, but we're starting to see that they're all struggling. Every single forward is struggling. So is it just all of the forwards or is it the system? And I think Mason Mount is a victim of the system. At the same time, I don't think he's as motivated at this moment, which really hard for me to criticize a player's motivation, but something is off with Mason Mount specifically. He has been arguably our most consistent player over the last couple of years. And it it is strange to me. Yeah. And and again, I think that Mason is one of those players that, you know, in a small sample size, you might find a little bit of concern and then you just start adding to the sample size and it's like, hey, things will even out. He'll be fine. But but again, it's just to me um, something that is a little bit of a warning signal that's like if this guy's not able to do what he does well in this system, that would be something that as a manager like, OK, I he's a player we need to make sure is being used where he's the most valuable because he's probably our most valuable player. Um and he's so consistently so, um, because it's like you said, his work rate is so consistently good that even if he's, you know, his finishing touch isn't there, he's, his first touch is a little sloppy on the day, he's got so much that he can bring to the table. Um, but I, I want to go to this this also. Uh, you know, we've talked around it a little. We've talked about Mason Mount, talked about Reese James, talked about Jorginho, talked about Loftus-Cheek. Let me bring it together here and say, you know, I... I agree with you that Thomas Tuchel is more under Todd Bully. He is more sort of empowered than ever before, maybe more so than any other Premier League manager currently. But um, I don't think there's a lot of argument there that Bully's said and Tuchel's talked about having to be a big part of this transfer discussions and even Tuchel saying he'd like to do less of that, that it's been a challenging summer because he's, he has had to step in and be more part of the transfer discussion stuff than just being a manager on the pitch. But I think that's where you have to take him at his word that he, he between the evidence that we see that he is involved and what he says he is, that he's involved, that if, if you know, the transfer activity is being largely directed by him and... When I look at that starting lineup today, we have made a lot of investment in this team. Thomas Tuchel's been here about a year and a half, um, second full season, and yet it's he, he's often describing the squad as if he got here five minutes ago, and this is so we're in this huge transition as a squad, and yet you look at the money spent, um, okay, maybe we had a lot of reinvestment and, and rehabilitating of the squad to do, but he, we, we are in a 
the square one of that. We're we're a couple stages in at least. And yet when you look at the money spent on our roster and then there are as many as five Chelsea players that you would argue out of that starting eleven on Saturday that were not in their preferred position. That that's really tough on me because clearly we're not bending this formation to fit the personnel. We're not really bringing in the personnel to fit the formation. We just seem to constantly be talking about players that have. I'm gonna. I, I'm using air quotes here. Flexibility in position. It's starting to become like you mean that you just can play them out of position, I guess, because Loftus, you know, Loftus Cheek at ring right wing back. We've talked about. I think both Jorginho and Gallagher are being asked to play a two-man midfield in which neither of them, that's their best position. I don't think Mason Mount's best position is where he is right now. I'm not sure, you know, I, I'm going to call Raheem Sterling the striker. I think Havertz probably was, but, uh, you know, we're we're clearly relying on Sterling to be the, the primary goal provider. I don't know that that's his best position. Havertz, as a number nine, that's not his best position. Uh, this, is, that, this is where I, I have a hard time looking at that at five players playing outside of their best position and then saying like, yeah, I have a lot of confidence in what we're doing because it didn't work Saturday. It looked poor. The effort was poor. We were overmatched in midfield. We talked about the the deficiencies before the match. They came true during the match. And then post-match, your manager's talking about the problems of the match and basically saying those are not the issues. They were a couple individual mistakes and we'll be okay. Uh I hope he's right. I think we'll probably come out against Leicester, and probably, probably we will. We'll look gangbusters, and our midfield will be moving the ball quickly. And we'll. This is not me thinking suddenly Chelsea's going to lose five of their next six matches. It's just to say this is not a one-off either. I think we're going to have a bunch of times this season with a very similar result where we didn't pull out the effort, we played people out of position. And we kind of got our asses kicked by a team that had no business doing so. And we're kind of left shrugging our shoulders going, huh, hope we do better next time. And I'm just getting to the point where I'm a little frustrated by that because it's one thing hitting your head consistently. Hitting your head against the same exact surface consistently is a little bit different frustration for me. Well, I'm going to blow your mind because if you look at the uh, player position map, the player that was actually the most forward and most central was Mason Mount. So if you got lost in the quote-unquote cohesion of our front three, then I can't blame you because oftentimes it's impossible to tell who is our actual striker. Yeah, right? And I think, again, like Mason Mount, it speaks to his abilities to be such a multi-tool player that he can be, he can kind of do it all and still oftentimes be like pretty impactful and say, you know, he gets my vote for man of the match. But I also think it adds to when we're sitting here saying, you know, we're three matches in and he really only played well once. Like, yeah. I, I And then this is where I almost get breaking things down too much in my mind. That's where I start to go, well, maybe that's a fair argument for Pulisic too because I don't think he's a great player for this squad, but his arguments for for why things haven't worked out for him are a lot of the same sort of deal. I'm not played in a consistent position. I'm not played consistently. Um, and we don't have a system that really lets me do anything from one match to the next. I can be incredibly isolated and alone. So now I'm going to move into to the last part of my argument uh, that, that I'm frustrated at that keeps coming back to me along those lines. Um, 
and it's sort of this, the, the I'm going to call it the carousel, and it's not just at one position. I, it's almost to me like we, Chelsea, are this, this high-performance race vehicle that is not winning races. And so we're back at the shop, and we're looking at it to try to figure out, like, what do we need to do to be back on top? And for some reason, the only conversation we really want to have is about replacing the road tires, and we need different tires. And while that is obviously an important part of a, of a vehicle, uh, it's like, Hey, we've tried 25 different tires, and yet all people are talking about is is tire 26 and tire 27. Why don't we try looking at the engine? And that's, to me, where this conversation about, oh, man, is it Tammy Abraham? Is it Lukaku? Is it Werner? Is it, look at all these failed, talented attackers that have were great before they came here, and then it pretty much instantly great as soon as they left again. Um, in Tammy's case, actually pretty great while he was here, but I, I, to me, it's like, okay, and then again, now go to the center backs, and it's, well, this guy didn't work. We just need Fafana. We just need this guy. We just we just need Aubameyang. We just need this per- At some point, it's actually logic itself that is defied because it says, look, if you have solved this problem 25 times over the same way, and yet all 25 times you end up back in this starting spot of, like, the problem wasn't really solved, who is the idiot? the 25 people you put in to solve the problem that didn't solve it, or you, because you didn't realize after the 23rd time, maybe we need to look at a different part of this vehicle and to look at the engine instead of the tires. And that's my frustration is I think this week we may be talking after the Leicester match, possibly about a good performance, but also possibly about a hundred million pounds being spent between now and then. And they're not going to be on the midfield. And, I don't know, after this conversation we've had here today and replaying about this match, how you can go and fix the tires for the 27th time and not even look around and go, hey guys, our job is to care about the whole vehicle. We have to be smarter than blaming it on this single issue. Yeah, I don't have too much to add to that. I've actually been saying this exact same thing for years, and I think a lot of people have observed this issue with the club if there was one person that was very observant of this issue it was frank lampard who pleaded the one thing he wanted from the ownership was a defensive midfielder and it caused a lot of friction with him in the ownership for demanding declan rice and it was not given to him and a lot of people said that's not what we need we're fine in that position and we're suffering from it for many years at this point and it doesn't look like it's going to be fixed anytime soon so i i mean at this point, it's a lost cause arguing against a wall because no matter how much we continue to echo this sentiment, no matter how much everyone sees this issue, it's just become exhausting at this point. I don't have the same passion to argue this point anymore because I've been arguing it for years and nobody seems to take it until we lose in this fashion. And then people finally start to say, wow, our midfield was not good. And it's like, it hasn't been good. We may have had some good performances, but this has been an issue for years and it's going to continue being an issue. And I, there's no point in arguing it for me anymore. Well, and, and what's discouraging a bit for me is it's almost like not only hasn't it been good, but maybe it can't be good because of the actual setup. You know, you're just set up for failure. And so it, asking individuals to perform when they're set up for failure in a way that makes everyone feel like it was a success is just uh, idiocy, frankly. So, um, you know, I, I think that's enough for me for sort of my, 
you know, I, I've spent a good amount of time here sort of uh, diving into deeper the, the concerns I've shared a little bit here. And now I have, I have brought up that I have concerns about our midfield structure and the way we're going to approach it. Um, we, you and I talked about in the preseason in the Arsenal match and how we, we did, we did try a back four and a, and a midfield three and we got, Oh man, Odegaard might've been able to beat him, beat us by himself. Um, but I'm not sure that a preseason one-off means put it, you know, scrap it never, never to be seen again. I, I, these are the things that I'm, I'm not a world-class manager, but there has to be some kind of, middle ground between you know throwing out a new system in the middle of a major match and getting found out and just sticking with something over and over and over that at this point it's pretty clear that we're not very hard to game plan and tactically um, prepare for because even though we have some we have players with flexibility we're playing them so far out of position that they're you know they might they might be good enough to play in three or four positions but if they're playing in their fourth best position they're not going to be hard for a guy playing in his very best position to compete with so um i just think we neutralize a lot of our our talent advantage by by going about matches the way we do and then of course when you add a a, a just uh world-class error uh edward mende i'll give you credit for that world-class error yes it's gonna it's gonna make things turn from a little bleak to really dark but um you know, Julian, I think today was, or, or this weekend was a little bit of a turning point for me in that, you know, I, I'm not one to necessarily like say I back a manager or I don't or I, but but I have largely been a, a Tuchel guy, a guy that is pretty darn happy and defending him to those that uh, aren't as confident. And I, and I think, I think today was a pretty big blow to my confidence in that era, in that area, just because of. Uh, all the stuff we've talked about here today, that these things are, are kind of turning from me from concerns to sort of like major, major problems that are just being not addressed at all. And that's why I have a little bit of a hard time saying, you know, hey, let's just, you know, this was a tough match. Everybody's going to, you know, they happen sometimes. Every team has some bad days. Let it go and we'll be we'll be just fine. I I, I don't think so because I think we're going to be back here at least three more three four more times a season, um, maybe almost able to just recycle this conversation. Saying what else do we say because it was the same issues that have sort of been here um, and not being addressed for a while. But um, on a po- on a more positive note, I do think going into Leicester, I do I do think Wesley Fofana is is if we do sign him. Regardless of the fee, I think is a tremendous defender. I think is a player that can be a really solid player for a long time. I think specifically to the conversations we've had about Koulibaly and a little bit of his like being overmatched athletically and some of Thiago Silva's challenges challenges at the age he is. I think those are the kind of things Fafana should excel at um, and and should be for a long time. But again, when you're talking about a world record fee for a defender. That's I think Virgil Van Dyke for Liverpool and sort of like okay this guy's gonna become your your just absolute cornerstone and be the reason that you get clean sheet after clean sheet. Well, I just don't think there's a player out there for us that can do that because I think our system is way too dependent on, um, you know, other things outside of outside of those individuals. So, um, Julian, I think those are those are most of my thoughts uh, here. I thank you again for joining me, and let me let you finish things today here with any uh, lingering thoughts here as we wrap up the pod. 
Uh, well, first thing I want to say is um, my man at the match, I guess, was Thiago Silva. I think Thiago Silva is a great player. He's one of the few people that covered himself in glory in this match. I think he had as good a performance as he could, given that the house was burning around him. Uh, I mean, he, he said a lot of things that I feel like th there have been some of us that have gotten a lot of backlash for echoing these thoughts for a very long time. And I've had these same concerns for a very long time. And I... I I don't really have too much to add to that in general. I think that we're, we s still should be one of the better teams in the league. We still have the talent on paper. If the squad isn't quite to the balance that it needs to be, that's obviously a huge issue. And I guess the other glass half full thing is, I mean, I'll take a shot at Liverpool. We're still two points up on Liverpool. So uh, it could be worse, I guess. Well, and here's a stretch, right? We have Leicester at home, then we have Southampton uh, away, and then West Ham at home, who might have originally looked like a tough match, but right now they're bottom of the table, no points, no goals, um, and then it's Fulham. So, you know, this is a stretch of the schedule between now and, you know, mid-September mid when, we, when we're at home to Liverpool, who we'll see what happens with them in those coming weeks as well, where, where you know, we, sh we should get some points here, and we should we should start moving ourselves up the table and kind of getting where we want to be. Obviously, if we start dropping points to Leicester and Southampton and Fulham, then, then you know, we have some concerns. But um, I, 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 this match, frankly, just pissed me off for a lot of the reasons that I get frustrated about what we do. But I do not, it's not my intent here today to tell Chelsea fans like, man, you know, the sky is falling and woe is me. Things are about to turn really tragic because... Man, if you haven't noticed, the Premier League is more open than ever. I mean, the fact that Arsenal and Tottenham seem like two of the more like uh, solid, just consistent teams, maybe that tells you all you need to know. It's really City looks pretty darn like City. And otherwise, who knows? So, um, you know, I, I think there's some podcasts out there right now for Man United, for Liverpool, uh, you, you know, that aren't real feeling real optimistic and I think that's where we this is a long campaign and there's gonna be a lot of things that happen um uh, but um Julian I sure appreciate in some ways your patience for allowing me to uh you know get get to where you're at on some things for 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 the team I know like I said I know you've felt some of these frustrations uh as long uh, longer than I have um but I also appreciate um being able to have a little bit of optimism in there as well and, uh, you know, kind of um, just just looking forward to the season because I think that's the one thing I really don't want to do is just three matches in, really be trying to seek out all the things to be concerned about because there's going to be plenty of frustrations over this season and there's going to be a lot of uh, a lot of really exciting moments too. So I'll leave it at that. I think the next one's Leicester and I think we're going to, my hope is we're going to come out and, and really respond well to this match. And uh, hopefully a week from now, we'll be talking about a lot more fun 90 minutes that we just watched. Yeah. And of course I'm happy to be on here anytime. So uh, thanks for the opportunity to discuss this. Absolutely, my friend. It was always nice. It was so nice to be able to watch a match with you again in person and to be able to talk about things and just, just to see you again. Uh, Chelsea fans, thanks for joining us again. And uh, we should be back in about a week following the Leicester match. And until then, thanks for joining us on another episode of We Ain't Got No Podcast. <laughs>